Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather with your beloved sons and daughters who've been adopted into the family of God. We thank you for the church that was born out of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and called us together. And Lord, as we are the gathered church, we come to sit ourselves under the means of grace to hear your word and believe and to exhort one another and encourage one another and apply these words from the Bible to our own lives so that we might live in a way that would bring honor to you and be a testimony to the work of grace that you've done. We pray for the flock scattered around the world that listens on the Internet that you would also bring blessing and grace and mercy to them as they join us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are... In 2 Corinthians 12, we have come to verse 11. And last time we ended up having yet another discussion about how God graciously works and the means that He uses to work in our lives. And that topic seems to be a very prominent one. It's one that I've been discussing over the internet with some of my colleagues, um, particularly, have, particularly had a good discussion with Gary Gilley about this, because he's going to write a book, and the issue that we discuss is spiritual formation and why, why we are alarmed at this movement and what all's wrong with it. So uh, hopefully... I'm looking forward to Gary getting that book done so we can address these issues. How does God save us? How does God sanctify us? How does God speak to us? All of these things are at issue. And what sort of practices has God ordained that are sanctifying practices? That's the topic. Is that something determined by God, or is it something man learns through experimentation? And uh, Gary and I are adamant that we can't learn spirituality by experimentation. Because once that happens, you end up back with the monastery. And that's where it always heads. And so now there are groups that are starting a new monastic movements for Protestants. Protestant monasticism. Well, we need to resist these things. God works by his ordained means. Now, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 12, 11, then there was a a question, I want to wait until more people get here before we address that question that somebody brought up last week after class. But he says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Now, Paul had just finished what he thought was great foolishness by telling about his vision. And he didn't even give the content of the vision because whatever he saw in heaven was inexpressible things that it's not lawful for a man to utter. So he didn't give the content because it wouldn't have been lawful because whatever Paul knew about paradise, as he called it, was not something God had chosen to reveal. Someone asked me, if it's illegal to talk about heaven, then wouldn't it have been illegal for John to write Revelation? Well, Here's the difference. What God revealed to John is what God chose to reveal to the church. 
And so in the act of inspiring John to write Revelation, God shows what content and what about heaven that we can know, but it's not everything. It's just what's revealed in the book of Revelation. Whatever Paul actually saw in his experience included content that God had not chosen to reveal, so therefore it was unlawful, and God didn't ordain that Paul write about it. So that's how you make that distinction. And then we got into a real long discussion about thorn in the flesh. If you remember, we had a couple Sundays in a row, we talked about Paul's thorn in the flesh and how it was given to him in order to keep him from pride because of this vision of heaven that he'd had. Okay, and then that led into a discussion about means of grace. So if God used the thorn in Paul's flesh to humble him, then uh, do we need to go find a thorn in the flesh to inflict ourselves with? And the answer to that is no. And Colossians 2 specifically says that that's inappropriate. You know, asceticism is uh, warned against in Colossians 2. And then we discuss God's providence, how God is in charge of each of our lives, and what he providentially allows all fit into the concept of Romans 8, 28, and 29, and 30, where God is working together, to, uh, all things for good, to conform us ultimately to the image of Christ, which is the ultimate good. But God's in charge of that, not us. Now, in the midst of discussing that, uh, you want to bring the mic over here to Jim, Jim Palmer. He brought up a very important uh, point or question I thought that I wanted us to all discuss. Well, when you were talking last week about the thorn in the flesh that Paul had and uh, to keep him from being arrogant, I thought of James 4, 6, which says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, it says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay, so there it says that God gives grace to the humble. So the thorn was an agent of grace in that sense that God providentially gave Paul, right? He said, because my grace is sufficient for you. So grace comes to the humble. Now, when that's a very good passage. So let's think about that one for a moment. If grace comes to the humble and our nature is to be full of pride, is that not correct? Isn't pride rooted in every human heart because of the sin nature? Then how in the world are we going to humble ourselves and find grace? Well, that reminded me of this essay that we have linked on our reference links called Gospel-Driven Sanctification. Okay? Gospel-Driven Sanctification by Jerry Bridges. If you want to, That's a very good essay. And... The gospel, the preaching of the law and the gospel is a means that God uses to humble us because it reveals how serious our sin problem is, that we've broken God's law, that we fall short of God's holy standards, and that that condition is one that would damn us were it not for the fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we could obtain remission of sins if we believe in him. I believe that gospel preaching to even the saved is a means that God brings grace to us. 
We need to hear the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, it, it humbles us. It should, if it doesn't, there's something pretty hard in our hearts, isn't there? And, and I particularly like Communion Sunday when we, when we did talk about the blood of Jesus that was shed once for all, and we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Why would you think that that's a means of grace? Well, because it's a means of humbling us, and God gives grace to the humble. And, if, and uh, there were those in Corinth, when Paul wrote to them about the Lord's Supper, there were those in Corinth who were not humbling themselves. There were those in Corinth who were having a big party celebrating their own high status to the shame of the poor in Corinth. And Paul said they were eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Okay? Why? Because the Lord's table should humble us when we realize what God did for us. And God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So anything, the preaching of the law and the gospel in church is a means of grace because God uses it to humble us. And when we're humbled, we receive grace. I'm thinking of, I hope you're patient with me because I've been on this topic for several weeks. But this is my forum to work these things out. Okay. The emails back and forth with Gary Gilly are nice, but both of us only have limited time. And we used to have a Saturday morning men's meeting where we hashed all of this out. And we don't have that anymore. I don't have the time I used to have. But this Sunday school is like a forum where we talk about these things and we remind each other of the scriptures, like Jim just did, the one in James, about God gives grace to the humble. Yes. Is it the gospel that humbles us or is it the law? Well, the law, both in combination. Good question, Lawrence. Both things, both of them do. The law pulls us up short. It's like, remember, also when James said, we're like a man looking at his, himself in a mirror, okay? And so you see an image of yourself in the mirror, but then later he forgets, okay? So the law is like the mirror that, of the Word of God that's showing us our sinful self and our, uh, and our shortcomings and our needs. And the gospel is the answer. If all we had the law and we had no gospel, I don't know that it would really humble us. It might show us we have a problem, but then there's no solution to it, so we might as well just live with it. But, but the combination of the law and the gospel, if you, you think of Peter's uh, sermon on Pentecost, it's really kind of a prototypical sermon, if you will. There was in, somebody was challenging Ray Comfort and Todd Friel and said, well, you don't have to preach the law and the gospel. You don't have to preach the law at all. And they said, you, you don't see them preaching the law in Acts. So then I, I can't remember if it was on a forum or something, so I responded and defended those guys. And I said, what do you mean Peter didn't preach the law? These Jews, they very well knew the law, and when he indicted them for killing this Jesus whom you crucified, there they are, indicted by the law. Because it's, it was a sin. And so he preached the law and the gospel to them. And in the end, the ones that were convicted said they were stricken in the heart. And after they were smitten in the heart by the Holy Spirit, they were willing to ask, what shall we do? <laughs> okay. So I believe the combination of the law and the gospel brings us to, what shall I do? What can I do? I, I, I see my problem. I see my need. What does God want me to do? 
And then he says, repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered about, under the set under the apostles' teaching, and broke bread and prayed. So there they practiced the means of grace. So it's, it's a good question, but it's, it's both, the law and the gospel. Today I'm going to preach the law because we're in the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to preach the law. But I'm also going to point you to the gospel. And between that, we get grace. Uh, back to Rich. Jesus points it out so eloquently in his Sermon on the Mount, his very first verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh-huh. You cannot be saved unless you're poor in the spirit. You cannot be saved unless you're cut to the heart. You cannot be saved unless you are cut to the point where you understand you're a wicked human being. And that's the means of grace so that you can understand what Christ's work on the cross was. But it just is amazing how Robert Schuller brings out the exact opposite to the Beatitudes. He calls them the be happy attitudes. In other words, self-esteem is the whole point of his message. Be happy. <laughs> yeah, the be happy attitudes won't get you any humility or grace. So, thank you, Lord. Uh, I thank the Lord that, he, you know, thinking of Lawrence's question, this illustrated in Luke. Remember the Pharisee was praying, the, 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 the sinner was saying, he couldn't even lift up his head, and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, because he re- realized his wretched condition. And the Pharisee, what was he praying? Who, to whom was he praying? Himself. And he said, well, I'm glad I'm not like other men, like this guy over here. I remember one time, and you can be sitting under this all your life and still be full of pride. Let me illustrate this. I don't know why this came to my remembrance right now. But I used to, this was before I was a Christian, but I was golfing. When I was 18, 19 years old, I golfed. I had a, a job, so I worked midnight shifts so I could golf all day. I thought, I, I thought sleeping was optional back in those days. <laughs> and, and so every morning I was golfing, and the, one of the guys that golfed with was the local baker because he had to get up and bake his bread early in the morning so it could be sold during the day. And then he'd go, get off of baking and go, and so the two of us would golf. Well, we got joined by this guy who was his whole life in the Christian Reformed Church. I have nothing against the Christian Reformed Church or Reformed Doctrine, but that happened to be his background. And, of course, being Reformed, they would have known the law and the gospel, okay, and been taught the law all their lives and Ten Commandments. So here, anyhow, we're sitting on the ninth tee. I still remember where we were standing. And, and uh, we're sitting on the ninth tee, and, and my friend Tom Murphy was with me, too, and we were getting ready to tee off. And out of nowhere, this, this guy, this Christian guy, stood there, and he says, neither beer nor whiskey has ever touched my lips. Okay. <laughs> and the, and, and you know, he said it in such a pompous way. It's like, okay. Uh, but it was funny, the guy, the baker, who was a friend of Diane's dad, the baker looked at the guy and he says, don't talk like that in front of these young people. <laughs> So he wasn't confessing that he was a sinner that needed the gospel. He was, he was talking about how what a pure life he'd lived. So, uh, Jackie. I was thinking about what you said about is it the law that's humbling or is it the gospel that's humbling? The law is humbling because you know that you can never fulfill it. And the gospel is humbling because you know someone suffered and died so that you don't have to. Amen. Good statement, Jackie. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, when we, when we contemplate the price that Christ paid for our salvation, it, it has to humble us. 
Because we, we, you know, we sing a lot of songs that express that kind of humility, you know. The blood of Jesus shed. So thank you, Jim, for that good question. I thought it was a good follow-up, and that it's a good passage. We're talking about means of grace. It says right there, God gives grace to the humble. So whatever humbles us would be means of grace. It should humble us. Now, verse 11, I, Paul says, I become foolish, you compel me. Now, fool, the foolishness was to tell about his experiences and his qualifications and so on, because he really doesn't want to preach himself. Paul said elsewhere, we don't preach ourselves. But their willingness to listen to false teachers forced Paul to explain himself in a way that he wished he did not have to. And if they hadn't compelled him, he just wouldn't do this. But he said, you've compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. One of the scholars I read said that when Paul said, I am a nobody, he's not being melodramatic. In fact, Garland says this, quote, Paul's honest evaluation of his true status before God, unquote. His honest evaluation of his true status before God. He's a nobody. And in Philippians 3, he talked about how wicked he'd been and that all, whatever he could have thought about of the flesh, he considered it all rubbish compared to the excellency of Christ. The I have become genomai is in the perfect tense in the Greek. And literally it says, I become a fool. Perfect means at a point in time that continues to be the case. Because he was compelled to tell about his visions of revelation, he made himself a fool, and now that it's written down in the Bible, he stays that way. <laughs> okay. um, because he doesn't want anybody to think that this speech that he just gave is there as a model for what everybody else should do. He was compelled to do it, and then in a sense he renounced his status and said, I'm a nobody. Here's all the reasons why you would think I'd have status like these guys that you are listening to, but I don't consider any of that important. I'm a nobody. And even though he said I was, in no respect, inferior, and literally in, in no single thing, not in, a, not in one thing was he actually in regard to status as a preacher of the gospel, as a status as an apostle, that is one sent by Jesus Christ. And none of these things was Paul actually inferior. In fact, these guys were inferior to him because they had a different gospel, a different spirit, and a different Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.4. And he should have been. Uh, the word there for should have means to owe an obligation. They have an obligation because uh, to, be com- to commend Paul because he preached the gospel to them and it was that gospel that he preached that caused them to become a church that led to their salvation. And they ought to have defended Paul against his adversaries, against these hyper Apostles or super apostles, as they're called, who considered themselves um, great. In fact, when it says, some people interpret this, the most eminent apostles as being like Peter, John, and James. In other words, they think what Paul's saying is literally, I'm not inferior to the eminent apostles. And he could be saying that, but throughout this section of Second uh, Corinthians, Paul is comparing himself to the super apostles. Okay, and so this is probably irony. And, he, and these the Greek there 
huperlion. Huperlion means very beyond. Okay? So the very beyond apostles were the ones who think that's what they are, but they're actually false. Okay? So rather than introducing the idea of Peter, James, and John here, he's still talking about those super, hyper, very beyond apostles who think that's what they are. And, by the way, isn't it ironic we still have those guys around today? It seems like they, uh, there's always somebody going to claim some super status uh, over and above ordinary. So no respect is no single way. Okay, i got a, a couple of verses here. Alice, could you look one up? Look up um, Luke 17.10, I think, I'm, and then Troy, Ephesians 3.8. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. <laughs> Good. Now that's the attitude that Jesus commands. When you've done everything you're supposed to do, just say, I'm, I have no value added here. Okay, you say it that way. No value added. I only did what any slave would do. This was expected. I'm not gaining some status by serving God the way he asked me to serve him. And Troy? To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul considered himself the least of the saints, much less the greatest of the apostles. Dr. Martin says this, Surprisingly or not so to some, the appearance of Titus with a severe letter in Corinth turned to Corinthians affection back to Paul. However, shortly thereafter, the opponents of Paul, most likely the false apostles, uh, convinced the Corinthians to return to their estimate of him that had prevailed prior to Titus's visit. This pendulum effect makes one wonder if Paul or Titus ever met these false apostles face to face. We almost get the idea that the latest arrival in Corinth is, is, is the leader of the charge. That is, it almost seems that the one in effective control of the Corinthian church was a person who visited the church most recently, whether it might be Paul or his opponent. So these are vacillating, vacillating Christians, not firmly grounded, not willing to stand firm. Because if the false apostle comes in, then everybody's going to believe what they just said. And then the true one comes, oh, maybe this is correct. All right? This happens. This happens. I've, I've heard from people... Uh, over the last three or four years, as we've discussed the apostasy in the church, discussed uh, the seeker movement, the you know the emergence and all of this stuff, and I've heard testimony from people where they had been working to preserve the gospel in a church and, and called some bunch of meetings and got people together and stood for the gospel and explained why it needed to be preached and explained what was wrong with the seeker movement. And they got the people to say, okay, yes, good, that's what we like. But then the pastor comes in who's been mesmerized because he went out to the purpose-driven seminar, and he comes and convinces all of them that they don't need gospel preaching and that what you need is a program that will attract people so that they'll like you, and then they'll decide they want to be Christians. And the whole church goes the other way. And, and I've, then I get a phone call and I said, what can I do? You, you try to convince these people and they're vacillating. They don't, they're not, they don't have any solid ground under them. Well, that reminds me of the church in Corinth here. And dear ones, we need solid ground so that we don't vacillate. Because some of the people, that, these false apostles that came on the scene here 
are often or almost always silver-tongued orators. They are persuasive persons. They, they look and sound like they're very kind and loving and they got your best interests in mind. And these people are, have followers because they're good at gaining followers. All right? And so you need to be strong in the Lord and strong in the understanding of the gospel, so much so that you don't get blown around by every wind of doctrine. But unfortunately, the, that wasn't seem a quality that these Corinthians seemed to have. They listened to the latest guy who came through town with a message that sounded enticing. It sounded good. It sounded Christian. Now, I was going to quote uh, Dr. Barnett, who says this. This verse consists of, one, a reproach to the Corinthians. I've become a fool, as explained by, two, his reason, for I would have been commended to you, followed by, three, in amplification, for nothing am I less than the superlative apostles. The reproach, which is deeply felt, is specifically directed from Paul to the Corinthians, as the emphatic pronouns indicate, it was you who compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. Emphatic. Point it is the I ought, I had a right to have been commended by you. Paul needed no letter of recommendation. The Corinthians were Christ's letter, known and read by everybody. Remember that earlier, 6.4 and so on? They themselves were the Lord's commendation, 10.18. Paul ought not to have been forced to speak out as a fool to demonstrate his apostle apostolic status. So that's what's going on in this verse. Paul has to defend himself because he was forced to by people listening to things they should not have been listening. Then we go to verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, how do you know the signs of a true apostle as compared to the signs of a false one? Well, the way you know the difference is by the message that the sign is given to validate. Signs, sema in the Greek, signify something. A sign points to something, to some idea or some person or what have you. A sign's role is to signify. All right? So if Paul comes into Corinth preaching the true gospel, as we know he did, according to the book of Acts, then his claim was that Jesus is the Christ. His claim is that Jesus, who came into this world and lived a sinless life and died and rose again, he shed his blood for the remission of sins, he's the Christ. And so in the context of preaching that, if God does a sign or wonder, that verifies the message. Paul claimed to have seen the risen Christ. He claimed, he said that in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 15, as sign of his apostolic status, that he had been sent by Christ, and that the teaching he had he got directly from Christ, from the resurrected Christ. So that made him an apostle. So the signs that God did in Paul's ministry signified that Jesus is the Christ and Paul is the one, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Yes. I was reading this verse last night and it really stuck out to me. This should be really a clear, uh, clear indication of these, the false prophets nowadays. You read this verse and they certainly aren't qualified by any means. 
Uh, they have maybe lying signs and wonders, but there's no true signs and wonders. Yeah, you know, that's true. And a lying sign or wonder was a lying sign. Well, it's something that signifies that some false message is true. If somebody preaches a false message and then in the context of that does a sign, then the sign is a lying sign, not because it's not a real sign, it may or may not be, but because it's signifying that that lie was the truth. So in the end, you can't go around the world just looking for signs and wonders, and when you find them, or if you find them, say, okay, this is it, this is God. You don't know that. You've got to go around the world if you're going to do that, whether on the Internet or in a real airplane. You have to listen to what they are preaching. And a true anointed person from God who has the Holy Spirit will preach Christ and point to him. And will not point to himself. Because we do not preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Jesus is Lord. That's how you do it. Now, they're hard to see people out there that don't get this. And I've talked to people, I've actually known people, and a friend of mine that lives in another city, doesn't come to church here, he did back in the early 80s, has relatives that have been looking for signs and wonders for 35 years. And they're still looking. And they go to meetings that some great man of God is going to do signs and wonders. So they go to the meeting because maybe this is going to be it. And it frustrates my friend because there's nothing he can do. They'll they'll do that until they die because they're convinced that until they see the signs and wonders, they haven't found what God is doing. Well, what God is doing is saving people through the gospel. Look for that. Right? Look for that. It's the same way with the emergent church. If you remember the debate with Doug Paget, if you were there, remember his PowerPoint One of his main points to tell what emergence is was one that said that we want to to go and find what God is doing and join it. Okay? Now, if you don't have an a priori definition of what God is doing, then you don't know what you're looking for. But they fill in the blanks. Okay, so then you read all the literature, like the secret message of Jesus, some of this literature, you find out that their idea of what God is doing is something like the social gospel. So that if they went somewhere in the world and saw somebody with a big truck full of clothes and they were giving those clothes to the poor, then they would have found what God was doing. It it could very well be Muslims that were giving away the clothes. Or Buddhists or Mother Teresa type person with no gospel. But they've already decided that's what God's doing because they're filling the blanks in out of their imagination of what they think God should be doing. So some people are going around the world looking for signs and wonders, and some people are going around the world looking for uh, good deeds done in anybody's name, not, not necessarily Christ, and therefore they're going to find out what God is doing. But this is backwards. The gospel is about what God has done once for all. Look at the once for alls in the book of Hebrews. This is what God has done. And what is God doing? God is in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. That's what God is doing. He's in Christ reconciling sinners. And Paul says, therefore, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, if I saw somebody preaching that and giving away clothes, great. There's the gospel. There's good deeds that adorn the gospel, but do not change it or actually add to it. 
because when we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, then they'll be forced to glorify God on the day of visitation. Yes, Robert. I know we've talked about this in the past, but the tendency, I think, is when we do try to go after these signs and wonders, that we look for that, and the Word of God gets neglected. And Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about this passage, but I keep going back to it in Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about, you know, we must give the more earnest heed to what we have heard, lest Mm -hmm. we drift away from it. Because Mm -hmm. that's our tendency, is we drift. Yeah, that uh, in the, the Greek there, Robert, I love that passage. It uses, it's using a, a nautical metaphor, and the author of Hebrews uses several nautical metaphors. And the word either has to do with keeping on course or being at anchor and not blown away by it. Could, it could mean either thing. And so we did that on the radio. And so our tendency is absolutely right, is to drift. So we were talking earlier about how God uses gospel preaching to sanctify Christians. Gospel-driven sanctification, as Jerry Bridges calls it. So that's we have to continually preach the gospel to the church because that's what was talked about in Hebrews, neglecting so great salvation. So we need to pay attention to what we have heard and not run around the world looking for some new word from God or some new thing God is doing. Or and here's another one, and we talked about this before. Well, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go find the kingdom of God and then join in with it. All right. Uh, where are you going to find the kingdom of God? Is it is it a, does it have boundaries? Is it a, uh, is it a municipality? Is it a state somewhere? W- where is this kingdom that you're finding? Well, the kingdom of God will be established when the King returns. For now, the kingdom of God is being built as God adds souls. To, to the church one soul at a time. They, they are transferred into the kingdom so that they'll eventually be the citizens of the kingdom when the king comes to reign over them. So there's no use getting on an airplane looking for the kingdom of God. You've heard me say it before. The kingdom of God does not have a zip code. It's not a place somewhere on earth. Nor is it identified when you see somebody doing uh, good works in the name of any particular religion or in nobody's name. The signs of an apostle were performed. Now, so this, uh, th- these were genuine proof that Paul actually had the signs of an apostle. I got a couple quotes here: miraculous works, signs, wonders, miracles, things that God did to verify that the gospel Paul was preaching was the true gospel. They accompanied the gospel. Now, I was going to quote Barnett, who says this. God wrought the signs of which Paul speaks. Moreover, the three terms amplifying the signs of the apostle are in the dative case, indicating instrumental use, as if to say, by signs, by wonders, by miracles, did God attest Paul's apostleship in Corinth. It's because God was the effective means of these signs that Paul can say, verse 11, Paradoxically, that he's not inferior, and two, that he is nothing. To this claim, Paul has the very significant qualification that such signs were wrought by God in all, preferably utmost, endurance. By all endurance of perseverance. The divinely wrought miracles occurred in the context of gospel ministry, 119, and therefore of weaknesses as listed in 1123 to 33 and 12, 9 and 10. Thus, of endurance in the face of affliction. 
Signs and wonders is a recurring phrase in the Old Testament, often in connection with the saving event of the Exodus. That's a very important thing to know. And this is something that is neglected by the signs and wonders crowd. The Exodus, when God established the Old Covenant, of which Moses was the mediator, God did extraordinary signs that signified that Moses was God's spokesperson and his message was God's message, and that they had to listen to God through Moses. And when I've been preaching through Exodus, we've made that very clear. And they had extraordinary miracles. The, the, the fact that these plagues came on the Egyptians and spared the Jews, the, the parting of the sea, the miraculous manna, all of the things that God did. Then his own theophany where he comes in fire and smoke on Mount Sinai and speaks ten words to everybody. And it scared them so much that after they heard the ten words, they said, Okay, uh, Moses, you go talk to God. We're going to die. All right? That's what, what, what was the point of the signs and wonders and miracles? To show that this is God's covenant. This is God. He's at work. Now, did that, did that create a generation of people that had great faith? Well, no. It says in Hebrews, they died in unbelief. So there gives, gives the lie to the claim that if you want people to have faith, then they've got to see signs. whole generation died in the wilderness and saw more signs than anybody here ever has. Have you seen manna? Well, if you claim so, don't, we don't believe you. <laughs> Another reason to be grounded in the gospel is in Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Yeah, so the target of the false signs is the church. All right, now let's just let's carry this idea forward. I know we've talked about it before. But we've always got new people coming to the church and new listeners on the Internet, and they may be facing this battle right now. If you're in a church that's a signs and wonders seeking church, please listen. There's some things that you need to know. So under the establishment of the Old Covenant and the indication of who's the valid mediator of that covenant was accompanied by extraordinary signs and wonders to show that Moses was the mediator. He spoke for God. This is God's covenant. Then comes the new covenant. And when Jesus comes on the scene of history, he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and speaking there, one of with Moses. And Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, had prophesied himself in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up another prophet like Moses and that he would speak for God. And when that one raised up, was raised up, listen to him. That's in Deuteronomy 18. Well, here on Mount Sinai, God speaks. Moses is there, and Moses fades away, and pretty soon they see only Jesus. And the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So now we have a new Sinai, so to speak. The new covenant. And we have a new mediator that's greater than Moses. And this one, this Jesus, who was the mediator of the new covenant, came and did many signs and wonders. He, he, he raised the dead. He healed the sick. He healed the blind. He walked on water. He cast the demons out of people that were in such conditions that they were chained in a cemetery. I'm thinking about the gathering. And now, not only did that guy come into his right mind, he wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. He said, asked if he could follow him. 
And he said, no, you stay here and testify to these people. So here, here the first gospel preacher to the Gentiles, a guy who had been saved from horrible demon possession. Wow. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, he appointed his apostles. The book of Acts, the signs and wonders in Acts are showing that the apostles are indeed the ones who had been appointed by Jesus and that their words are authoritative like Scripture. And we read that in Hebrews 2. Okay, God bearing him witness with signs and wonders. Who? The eyewitnesses, the apostles. That's why signs of these remarkable signs and wonders accompanied on in the book of Acts to show that Jesus' work was going on through his apostles and that they spoke for God. So Moses speaks for God, listen to him. Jesus speaks for God, listen to him. The apostles speak for God, listen to them. That's how God speaks. Now, the scriptures are the written record of that apostolic message. After they died, there are no more apostles that speak authoritatively for God. Okay. But one thing the apostles did do was predict that at the end of the age, there will be false signs and wonders. Jesus predicted that in Matthew 24, as Jim pointed out. Uh, Paul predicted it in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, chapter 4, he said, like Janes and Jambres, remember the Egyptian uh, musicians who resisted Moses? There would be false teachers doing signs and wonders to resist. Then he said in Second Thessalonians that even Antichrist would come with signs. And so the Bible says the next big wave of signs and wonders is going to accompany the end of the age and Antichrist. There are no more apostles, so there's no need to validate any because they have to have seen the resurrected Christ and nobody qualifies. That's the lowdown on signs and wonders. Now, am I saying God can no longer do miracles? No, I'm not saying that. God can always do miracles anytime he sees fit for whatever purpose God determines to do a miracle. But we're not in charge of it, and having meetings where everybody shouts and screams isn't going to create a miracle. It's just create pandemonium. Carlos. You know, looking back in Scripture, when they were, when the uh, Jewish people were in the wilderness or, you know, mm-hmm. being, waiting for something to happen, well, God had a lot of things happen for them. Like you said, He fed them, parted the sea, mm-hmm. and when uh, Moses is up in the mountain too long, they make a golden calf. Yes, I'm going to talk about that in my sermon today. Today I'm preaching on the ten. I'm on uh, the seventh commandment: "Thou shalt not commit adultery." I'm going to talk about both literal adultery and spiritual adultery. And by the terminology in Exodus 32, I'm going to prove to you that that golden calf was called spiritual adultery, even though it was using a little different terminology. It was using terminology common to the ancient Near East. Uh, all of the I'll just give you a little preview. All of the cultures that they have written records from of that, that time called adultery the great sin. And there's Abimelech called it that. And so when, when they built the calf, it was called the great sin. The great sin. In that case, spiritual adultery. Now, yeah, and, and these are the people that saw the miracles. So miracles don't make holy people. Faith does. That's the book of Hebrews tells us. People can see. In fact, they saw all these miracles died in unbelief. 
And even after seeing all the miracles, just to prove that miracles don't create faith in people in the human heart, they saw all of those miracles, including God himself in a theophany. And then they sent the spies into the land. And the whole point of the plagues, the whole point of the splitting of the Red Sea, the whole point of Sinai was that God was going to keep his promise to Abraham and raise up a people that would be Abraham's descendant and bring them into the land that he was going to give them. So that was the most important promise, and that's why all the miracles happened, to get them in there. And so they sent in the spies, and they come back and said, no, we don't want to go to the land. We want to go back to Egypt. We can't believe that the God who defeated the Egyptians could possibly go ahead of us into this land. That's how they died in unbelief. They didn't believe God. And God says to Moses, how long will this people not believe in me? Well... Forty more years. Okay, one more citation and then a couple cross-references for verse 12. This is Dr. Martin. As we understand it, Paul stopped short of saying that these credentials are the sole basis for anyone's apostleship. To say that signs and wonders and mighty works are the primary signs of apostleship goes against Paul's teachings in chapters 13 through 14, as well as 1 through 9. Earlier described his apostleship as true because he suffered more also proclaiming reconciliation that has proved effective, 5.18-21. Moreover, to boast of our great miraculous powers, put one's own person forward in a way that Paul does not. Ample proof of this is seen in Paul's reluctance to share his revelations and visions, 12.1-10. The conclusion is that Paul does not consider the miraculous as the main criteria to judge apostleship. He did do signs and wonders, but that's not where he's resting on He's resting on the gospel that he preached. Okay? That's what Dr. Martin said. Now, Dick, Romans 15, 18, and 19. Larry, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. And Mike, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. The first cross-reference is Romans 15, 18, and 19. Okay, 15, 18, and 19. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yes, so the signs were connected to gospel preaching, all right, not just showing himself out to be a wonder worker like Simon Magus wanted to do in Acts 8. Okay? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Amen. So, again, it was connected with the gospel itself. And then uh, 4 2, 2 Corinthians. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Yeah, so there was the pure teaching of the gospel, the word of God, is how he commends himself to every man's conscience. And that's so, that's so important, and it is so much so, the, the gospel itself, that it causes me to sometimes uh, be less harsh. I hate air wherever it resides, okay? 
But if somebody has the gospel right and a lot of other things wrong, then they have to go into a different category mentally than somebody who doesn't have the gospel. Okay? Because Paul can, if Paul can rejoice that some preach the gospel out of vain glory in Philippians, there has to be a little hesitancy to totally condemn someone who does preach the true gospel. But if they're teaching error as well, the flock needs to be warned about what that error is. Now, that's exactly the, the problem in Colossae. That was the problem, and that the Colossian heresy is alive and well today. The problem in Colossae was that they started with the right gospel, but they went on to something else. Okay? And so Paul rebukes him by saying, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. And the thing that was wrong in Colossae is that they did not hold to the sufficiency of Christ. So they, and that's why Colossians, which is going to be our next book in Sunday school, Eric Dauma will be lecturing through Colossians when I'm done with Second Corinthians. And I look forward to that. I'll be here. I just won't have to be the, the main guy, and that will be nice for me because uh, I'm struggling to do everything that, that I want to get done in, in a ministry. But, in, but So the book of Colossians is about the sufficiency of Christ because that's what was at, under attack. So there are people who will have the correct gospel, but then they try to build on by some other means or go some other direction or add things to that. Uh, like some sort of deeper life teaching or something like that. That's adding to the gospel. We don't start in the spirit and be made perfect by the flesh, Paul told the Galatians. Yes. All right. So, did you have something thick? Yeah. Just a, your next CIC article is an example of something where somebody really is a preacher of the gospel and very solid, but there's a problem. Yes. The next CIC article is about... Uh, a person teaching spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. And I, and I take some really strong stand against a lot of what this guy's teaching. But before I do so, I commend him for having the gospel right. He does have the gospel right. And it's a Colossian thing, not a Galatian one, because the Galatian ones were anathematized. They did not even have the gospel right. But in Colossae, they had the gospel, that's what they added to it. So that's what this next article will be about, somebody who added to and the adding to is where we get into trouble. And when things are added to that aren't connected to the gospel, people's minds and hearts always gravitate to those extra things. And pretty soon the gospel got lost. That's what happened to me as a new Christian. Uh, I got into a spiritual ditch for almost 10 years because of that very thing. I don't, I, for my own self, I don't believe I ever totally departed from the gospel. I didn't understand it as well as I should have. I'll say that. And I, but I would always ask people if they were Christian. If not, I would do the, I didn't understand the gospel, so I'm confessing my youthful error. I, I would lead them in the sinner's prayer, because that's what we were taught. And here, say this prayer, and then if you believe it, then you're a Christian. So that wasn't right either. But at least I believed in Jesus and the blood and and atonement and all of that. But I was a Colossian false teacher because I added things to it that were going to give people a better life, supposedly. And when that went shipwrecked and it became obviously so, then I had to go back and rethink everything. Uh, what was right and what was wrong? What was true? What was false? What did we do wrong? What should have we been teaching? How is God actually going to save people? How is God going to sanctify people? 
And that took some years, a lot of discussions. Dick came in in about the middle of it. Remember? When you first came, we were in the middle of that discussion. And then Dick joined in. And uh, one of the things that I ended up coming back to was Colossians. Because when I was in Bible college, God bless him. I I love this man. Uh, Reverend Wesley Smith was my favorite teacher in Bible college. And God bless him. He saw me walking around with Watchman Knee books, a spiritual man. I was going to try to be spiritual. And he sat me down. And he said, Bob, you're heading astray. I want you to study Colossians chapter 2 from the Greek. And you come back in class here. was in class. You come back and tell us what that means. What does Colossians 2 mean? You come to class, you tell us. And I was one of the, like, Rowdy ones in class, always wanting to say something, you know. Can you imagine? <laughs> always wanting to talk about what the Bible means and stuff like that. So I got out my Greek. I was in the middle of like my second year Greek, and I was working on Greek. So I got out Colossians 2, and I studied, and I studied, and I got out commentaries, and I studied. I could not understand it. Absolutely could not understand Colossians 2. And it became evident that most of the commentators didn't understand it either. And... So I went back to class about two weeks later, and, and Reverend Smith says, Okay, Bob, what did you learn from Colossians 2? I says, I learned that I cannot understand it. <laughs> and he, he accepted that. And then later, when I read Clinton Arnold, who really unlocked Colossians, and Colossians has become understandable because of some of the discoveries in these temples and places of worship where there were inscriptions on the wall because there were words in the Greek that nobody knew from in the context what they actually meant. Once we know what those words meant in their religious context, Colossians 2 comes alive. So I wrote three articles on it. But I looked up that man who had told me to read Colossians 2 and learn it, and I emailed him. He's still, he's still alive. His, his wife had just recently died, and they'd been married 48 years. And I said, thank you. God bless you. When I was a young man, you care about me. And he, he wasn't just going to let me go astray. People think it's a sinful thing to try to stop a young man from going astray because we're just supposed to all get along and just believe whatever. No, no, no. It's not sinful. It's not sinful. He told me the truth, and I wouldn't listen to him. It was my own stupid fault I wouldn't listen to him, but at least I knew somebody that had told me the truth later. And I emailed him, and I said, uh, God bless you. Thank you. And here's the articles. I think I finally understand Colossians 2. I'm a little slow learner. <laughs> 20 years later. And he emailed me back. And he said, well, what I remember about He remembered the incident, too. Out of all the students the guy had, he remembered the incident. And he remembered me. And here's what he said. He said, I thought it was a major breakthrough when you were willing to say in front of that entire class, I do not understand. Because he thought he could see the pride and, and the arrogance of where I was headed. And when I was willing to say, I don't understand, he thought that was a breakthrough. Which, okay. And when I did understand, I wrote about it. And then I realized that he had enough insight to realize that Colossians 2 is what would correct my thinking if I was able to understand it. But he left me with Colossians 2, and I went my way, and I did all the things he warned me not to do. But I came back. And so uh, it says in 
Is it James? Beloved, if any one of you departs from the truth, he who, what does it say? Converts a sinner from the area of his way, covers a multitude of sins. I'm not getting that just right. Where's, who can find that verse? This is the free cup of coffee award. <laughs> find a verse. Turn a sinner from the area of his way. Maybe chapter 4, chapter 3, it's in Colossians. Or I mean, Colossians, James. Found it? All right, there we go. There's the winner. James 5, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There it is. So there was a man willing to do that in my case. So maybe you're that person. Maybe you're the aunt, the mother, the grandmother, the relative, the friend that sees some person going astray, but sincerely religious, full of zeal, and you're the one that's going to sit down and say, this is the wrong way. This is not right. And if they don't listen to you like I didn't listen to the man, you don't have to stop praying for them. You never know. I finally did listen to him. It just took me 20 years. So um, that's my exhortation for the morning to to really care about the people around you because the gospel is so precious. And, you know, Satan has more tricks. He has more ways to get you off. So you've got to stay grounded in the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ. That's the message of Colossians. Christ is sufficient. Okay, thank you, and we'll see you upstairs.